0: Fifteen, and we are going to be in verses twelve through twenty. First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verses twelve through twenty. Uh, the title of our lesson this morning is "What If There Is No Resurrection?" What if there is no resurrection? What are the What are the consequences for you and I if there is no resurrection? That's, that's the title of our lesson. Let, let's read our verses, verses 12 through 20. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church and he says this, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, as we stated uh, the last couple weeks, there is some really bad theology going around the Corinthian church. As Christians, they believe that Jesus was raised from the dead but at the same time, they don't believe in the resurrection of believers. Everybody with me? That's what, that's what this whole 15th chapter is all about. They believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, but they don't believe in the resurrection of, of believers. And, and Paul points this out right in verse 12. He said, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say... There is no resurrection. So there were people in the church that said, yeah, we believe Jesus is raised from the dead, but not us, not believers, okay? So Paul has included this whole 15th chapter of Corinthians for one reason and and one reason only. And we've said this for three weeks in a row. This will be the last time I say it. But he's trying to prove to the church, he's trying to prove to believers like you and I, that we too, just like Jesus, will literally and physically and personally and bodily rise from the dead. That's what the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians is, is completely about. As I mentioned, the good thing for us, it's not only the longest chapter in Corinthians, it's actually the longest chapter in the New Testament, and it's all about the resurrection. So we're going to learn over the next few weeks a lot of really cool things about the resurrection, not only Christ's resurrection, but ours as well. Now, in today's verses, Paul is going to list five consequences of, ...for the church, five consequences for the gospel, if, in fact, Jesus is not raised from the dead. But before we go there, let's make sure... Now, Paul is using this as an argument. He's saying, okay, you don't think Christ is raised from the dead? Then let's think this through. This is what it means if he's... If I'm sorry, if, if there is no resurrection of the dead, this is what this means. But before we go, let's make sure we understand exactly what Paul really believes. And And if you jump to the end, we're in verses 12 through 20... If you jump to the end, you'll see this. Paul says, but, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, Paul says, and notice the words he used, but, in fact. He says this is a historical fact. This isn't this isn't something we're, we're just dreaming up. This isn't something of our imagination. This is a historical fact. He's already told us how he was raised, how he was seen by by Peter, he was seen by James, he was seen by five hundred men at one time, he was seen by Paul himself. Paul says, "Go go to Jerusalem, talk to those people. They're still alive." This is a historical fact. Paul says, "In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep." So he he believes. With all of his heart because he's seen Jesus, that he knows that Jesus has been raised. And what he's saying here is that the fact that Jesus has been raised is the guarantee of our resurrection. That's why he uses the term first fruits. Okay? The first fruits, if you if you went out and planted a crop of corn or barley or or or, or string beans or, or or fruit or whatever, if when you go out and you make that first harvest, you make that first picking, and you take it back to the house, or you take it to the temple, or wherever you take it, that's what's called the first fruits. And the first fruits of a harvest mean there's going to be what? Second, and third, and fourth, and fifth, and sixth, there's going to be more. That's why it's called the first fruits. So when he calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection, he's saying his resurrection was the first one, but there's going to be a lot more to come, okay. So that's why he uses that term. Now, Paul believes this. For example, in Romans eight eleven, he he says it's very clear. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, the same Spirit that two thousand years ago told Jesus to rise up out of that tomb, that raised His body out of that tomb, the Bible says that same Spirit lives where, in you, and in me. And he says, if that same spirit lives in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. So this is, this is exactly what Paul believes is going to happen, but he's making an argument about it today. So this is what Paul believes and what he's trying to prove to the Corinthians in verses 13 to 19. So he's, they've got this bad theology, okay, that Jesus has been raised from the dead, but not believers. Believers won't rise from the dead. And so he's attempting to torpedo this bad theology that Christ rose, but no one else will. Now, I want to stop here this minute, this morning for a few minutes and chase a rabbit. I try not to chase too many rabbits. Very often I try to stay on, on, on track with the, with the scripture, but this morning I need to chase a rabbit. The Corinthian church very early on had bad theology Okay, and if you look at the Bible and you think, well, they're the only ones that have bad theology, let me tell you, you would be sadly mistaken. The the American Church is slap dab full of just bad theology, just like the Corinthians had. Um, did you know? And I'll give you an example this this morning that that most surveys, and I'm a, I'm a big survey guy. I like every time I see a survey on the church, I like to go read it. What are people really thinking? What are people really believing? And there's always surveys being done by LifeWay Research or Barna or people like that. And, and when they do these surveys, one of the things you find out is that not some, but most Americans who label themselves as Christians actually have beliefs that we would consider heretical. Okay. In other words, they embrace beliefs that have been around for 2,000 years that the church has said, no, that's not right. That's not in line with, with Christian Orthodox thinking. Um, and, and this is, this is going on all, all the time. For example, I'll give you one example. LifeWay Research did a survey back this past year. So this is not five years old or ten years old. It's, it was last year. And if you want to read it, you can go out to LifeWayResearch.com and look it up. And the title of the article that I read said this, Americans love God in the Bible, but they're fuzzy on the details. And that, that is absolutely true. Americans love God, right? You, you can go out on Facebook and it's God, guns, and country, right? They all love God, but you start asking them about the details, they're a little bit fuzzy on what that really, what that really means. So I'll give you an example. Again, this was last year. This was LifeWay Research. By the way, when, they, when they're calling people and talking to them, if, if they call and say, they say, are you a Christian? They say, no, I'm a Muslim. Well, that's, that's, we're not interested in you. In other words, everybody they talk to here are, says, I'm a Christian. These are only Christians that they're talking to. I'll give you an example. 67% of people that profess to be Christians said that most people are good by nature. That's two out of three Christians believe that people are good by nature. Now, see, the problem with that is that is exactly contradictory to the Bible, is it not? What does the Bible say? There is none good. No, not one. All we as sheep have gone astray. There's none good. But see, two-thirds of people that say they're Christians said, yeah, most people are are good. I'll give you another one. Seventy-four percent, almost three out of four said that small sins don't send you to hell. It's only the big sins that send you to hell, not the small ones. That's three out of four Christians. Again, what's the problem with that? It contradicts Scripture. What has James said? That if you break the law in one point, you're guilty of what? You're guilty of all of it. Just do one thing wrong, you're guil- You're just as guilty as the guy that breaks all of them. That's what Scripture says. But mo- but seventy almost 75% of Christians say, little things don't send you to hell. 56% agreed with the statement, the Holy Spirit is a force, but not a being. He's not a person. He's just this force, like Star Wars. The force is with us, but, but he, they don't believe he's a, a person. Now, it, it's, it's a pretty bad thing, right, that cr- people who call themselves Christian can believe things that directly contradict scripture. Now, that's pretty bad, but what's even worse is that when you really start asking Christians questions, you'll find out that they believe things that, de- uh, that directly contradict other things that they believe. Now, that's bad. I believe this, but I also believe that, even though those two things are in direct contradiction to one another. I'll give you an example. Seventy percent affirm the doctrine of the Trinity, that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are three in one. Everybody, everybody knows what the Trinity is. Seventy percent said, yeah, I believe that. Sixty percent agree that Jesus is both human and divine. Now, that's great because that's what the Bible teaches. Those are all good things. So 70% believe in the Trinity, 60% believe in the, uh, the dual nature of Christ, both human and divine. That's all good. Yet more than 50, 50% went on to agree with the statement that Jesus is the first being created by God. Now, how can you believe that you are God, but yet he was created by God? That makes no sense, right? Those are in contradiction to one another. By the way, that's a heresy known as Arianism that was condemned by the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. That's, that's been around for a long time. And, and Orthodox Christianity has always condemned that, that Jesus is a created being. The Bible tells us that everything that was made was made by who? By him. He didn't make himself. See, that's in direct conflict. Yet 50% of Christians agree with that statement. 70% of them agree there's only one true God. That's great. Yet 64% thought this God accepts people of all religions, even people that believe in another God. See, again, we're just we're, we're contradicting our, ourselves. Or how about this one? 50% said only those who believe in Jesus will be saved. But 60% said that eventually everybody goes to heaven. Well, Guys, you cannot have your cake and eat it too. You, you can't have it, you cannot have it both ways. You know, I see this all the time. And, and by the way, I've been there. You know, it's like, for example, how many of y'all believe God is sovereign? You believe God is sovereign. That, by the way, when you say that, you mean that God is totally control, in control of all things, that nothing happens outside His will. That's what it means to be sovereign. But how many of us would go to a hospital, somebody's just been in a car wreck and maybe lost a loved one, and we put our arms around them and say, this wasn't God's will. God didn't have anything to do with this. You, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't say, God, that's not his will, but yet God is sovereign. It can't be both. If I put my arm around somebody and said, this wasn't God's will, you know what I'm telling them? Think that through. That means that God's not sovereign. That means that things happen in this life that are outside of his control. That means probably that there are times in this life when Satan is stronger than God. You see, if you think that through, when you put your arm around that, you just, you just scared them to death. Put your arm around me and tell me God's in control. I might not understand it, but that will comfort me. Tell me that God's not in control, and when I think that through, that scares me to death. I want to serve a God that's in control, even of the bad things that happen. Because if there's times when he's not in control, what hope do we have? But see, we all get caught in this sometime if we're not, we're not careful. You see, it's one thing to be wrong. And we've all been there. How many of you have had wrong theology? We all have, okay? We've all been there. But if you're in your Bible, if you're trusting the Holy Spirit, if you're meditating and thinking on Scripture, I believe with all my heart, that the Holy Spirit will lead you to truth. He'll lead you out of error, and He'll lead you into truth because you're you're open to that. You're in the Bible. You're wanting truth. But see, it's a whole other thing to contradict yourself. When you've got one belief that contradicts another belief, what that tells me is you're not thinking it through. You're just saying, you know, I believe that and I believe that, but you're not thinking. Everybody with me? You see, See, that's today what we're going to see, and I bring all this up because this is exactly what's happening in the, in the Corinthian church. You see, they believe that, that Jesus rose from the dead. Therefore, they believe in the resurrection. But then they don't believe that believers will rise from the dead. Therefore, they don't believe in the resurrection. Well, which is it? And, and by the way, this is what Paul is going to say to them. You can't have your cake and eat it too. There is either a resurrection or there's not a resurrection. In fact, look at verse 13. Paul points this out right at the beginning. He says, guys, think this through. Think about what you're saying. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ is raised. In other words, you can't have it both ways. You can't have a resurrection of Christ's body and no resurrection of believers. If there's no resurrection of believers, then Christ is not raised from the dead. He said, think. Use your mind that God gave you. Think think this stuff through. And that's exactly what he's doing this morning. You see, he will not allow the Corinthians to sit or to live in this bad theology. He, he's not going to let them do that. He's going to make them think, okay? He's going to say, okay, you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead? Then let's think this through. What does that mean for Christianity? What does that mean for, for, our, for our spiritual life? And what he's going to do, he's going he's to spell out five consequences if Christ is not raised from the dead. Okay, everybody see what he's doing this morning? He's got, they got this bad theology. He's saying, okay, if you really believe, don't believe there's a resurrection, let's think this thing through. And remember, he's trying to get them to see the contradiction in their theology. And not only the contradiction, but the misery in it. If you really believe this, this is the misery that waits for you at the, at the end of this. Here's the five things. Number one. The first consequence, if there is no resurrection of the dead, which means, by the way, that Christ is not raised from the dead, is vain and lying preachers. Look at verses 14 through 15. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. Now, that, of course, is a huge consequence for the millions of preachers and teachers of the Word of God. That means that if Christ is not not raised from the dead, then for the past 10 years, everything I've been doing, every Sunday, all the hours I spend in study, is absolutely useless. It, it's vain. I, I might as well be out fishing or, or, or go play golf or do something else. It's just, I, I'd get, you'd get just as much out of that as you're getting out of this. Paul says, you are a vain and lying preacher and teacher of, of the Word of God. Okay? In other words, your, your, your entire life that you've dedicated it to, 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 to Christianity, is useless if there is no resurrection. But beyond that, think about all the people who sit under the preaching and teaching of these people right? If there is no resurrection, Paul says, then if I've been lying about that, what else have I been lying about? If I've been misrepresenting God in the area of the resurrection, in what other area have I misrepresented God? In fact, what Paul is saying, if there is no resurrection, you can't trust a word coming out of my mouth. In fact, you can't trust a word that comes out of this book because this book says there is a resurrection. Do you see how disastrous that would be? Christianity, if there's no resurrection and, and, and all the preachers and teachers are lying and misrepresenting God, Christianity just falls apart. There's no more church. There's no more body. There's no more nothing. That's what Paul says. says this would be disastrous for the preaching and teaching of the Word. Number two, look at verses 14 through 17, a vain and futile faith. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain. Look at verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your, you're still in your sins. Listen, there are a lot of people out there in America. Today. I just finished reading a book not too long ago, and it was really eye-opening for me. And it was about a guy who's a very smart guy, and he, he died not too long ago, but he was basically spent his life in seminaries. And the some of the stuff that's going on in these seminaries is unbelievable. There are literally people teaching in seminaries that do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They believe he was a good teacher. Maybe, maybe they put their faith in that. They, they would call themselves Christians. They believe Jesus was a great man, a, a great teacher. They believe he was a good example of how to love your, your fellow man. But they basically believe the story of the resurrection is symbolic. In other words, it's symbolic of the triumph of the human spirit or it's symbolic uh, of how Jesus continues to influence people today even after his death. But they do not believe in the resurrection and they would call themselves Christians. But you see, that type of faith in Christ without a resurrection, can I tell you all, that is absolutely useless. You might as well believe in Gandhi. You might as well believe in Muhammad. You might as well believe in another person who's rotting in the grave somewhere. Without the resurrection, this, this is nothing. This is all futile. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith has no substance. It's worthless. It profits nothing. Just, just go eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Your faith means absolutely nothing. Number three. Paul says, now, this is important. We're going to spend a few minutes here this morning because this is, this is um, interesting. Interesting. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. Okay, look at verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Now, notice this is getting increasingly serious, right? It started out with just a bunch of vain and lying preachers, and now he says your faith is in vain, and now he says you're still in your sins. Now, what Paul is doing here, folks, is pointing out and, and, I, and I think a lot of us don't understand this. There is a very crucial connection between the resurrection of Christ and the death of Christ. You see, Paul is saying, and I'm going to say this twice so we understand what he's saying. Paul is saying without the resurrection, the de- Christ's death on the cross accomplished nothing. Okay, let me say that again. Paul is saying that without the resurrection, you're still in your sins. His death on the cross accomplished absolutely nothing without the resurrection. Now, that's a big statement, right? Why? Have you ever thought about that? If he died on the cross and the cross paid for our sins, why did there have to be a resurrection? What's the, what's the point of the resurrection, right? Why would I still be in my sins? See, that's what Paul's saying. If Christ is not raised, then his death accomplished nothing for the forgiveness of your sin. If Christ was not raised, you're still under the same guilt and the same condemnation, the same wrath of God for your sins that you were before. The resurrection is absolutely crucial. Now, again, as I said, I think it's important that we understand this, so I'm going to spend a few minutes on it and cover it in detail. Now, let me say this before I go very far. Let's be absolutely clear that it is the death of of Christ on the cross, his shed blood, that is the basis of our forgiveness and our justification before God. Do we all agree with that? We are, it is the blood that covers our sin. Romans 5, 8, 9 says this, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been, say that with me, justified by his blood. We are made right with God by his death on the cross. But yet, Paul says, If there's no resurrection, you're still in your sins. You're not right with God. So what's the connection? See, that's what we want to know. We know it's the death, the shed blood of Christ that pays our debt before God. It justifies us. It it, it means it makes us right with God. God declares us absolutely innocent. Okay? So here's the question. Paul says without the resurrection, we're still in our sins. Why is that? Why did did there have to be a resurrection? In fact, what is the connection between the resurrection and the death of Christ? Well, I'm going to answer that for you, and then I'm going to show you Scripture to, to back it up. So here's the answer. The resurrection of Jesus is the Father's acceptance or the reward of his sacrifice. Okay, the resurrection of Jesus is the father's acceptance of his sacrifice. If he's not raised from the dead, that means the father does not accept his sacrifice. In other words, it's somehow deficient. It's not good enough. And if it's not good enough and if it's deficient, guess what? You're still in your sins. Everybody with me? Okay. now let's go look at the scriptures that back that up. We'll start with Hebrews 2, 9. It says this, But we see him for a little while, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of his death. See, it tells us right there. Why was he crowned with glory? Why was he resurrected? Why did he ascend to the Father and sit at the right hand? Why was he given a name above every other name? Because of his suffering. Because of his death. Because, in other words, it was an acceptance. It was a reward for what he did. The father is saying, man, that, that was perfect. What you did was awesome. Come come, come with me. I've got a kingdom for, for you. See, the glory and honor that Jesus received in his resurrection and his ascension was because of his suffering and death. In other words, his resurrection was the reward or the acceptance of his suffering. Um, again, I'll say it again. Therefore, if he's not been raised, what does that tell us? That means something's wrong with this sacrifice. It wasn't sufficient. It wasn't, it wasn't perfect. It was deficient in some way. And if it, if it was, then we're still in our sins. Remember, Paul doesn't, by the way, Paul doesn't believe all this, right? He's just showing them you've got to think this through. Look at Hebrews 10, 12 through 14. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Why? Why was why did he sit down at the right hand of God? Because by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. See, once again, there's the connection between Jesus' death and resurrection. He sat down at the right hand, in other words, he was raised and ascended to heaven. Why? Because by a single offering, in other words, it was perfect. It was perfectly sufficient for all sins for all time. There was nothing wrong with it. See, in other words, the sacrificial death of Jesus for our sins was so... listen, I love that scripture. It was so perfect that he perfected us for all time by that one sacrifice. That means all sins forgiven, past, present, future, the whole nine yards. Okay? On the basis of one sacrifice. I, again, I can't, I can't get enough of that scripture. Listen, do you understand what that scripture says? Let me go back to it real quick. Read that. Because by a single offering, he has, what's that word? Perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And see, what, what he's saying there is this. You and I are being sanctified in this life, are we not? Is anybody here perfect? Are we being changed from glory to glory, day to day? Every day, we should be growing in the knowledge of God. We should, be, we should be shedding those sins and shedding those things. We should be getting better and better and better. We're being sanctified. Yet, but in God's eyes, we are what? Perfect already. Why? Because the sacrifice was perfect. In one By one sacrifice, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You see, all that was done by the one perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus. Therefore, because His sacrifice was accepted, God raised Him from the dead and sat Him down at the right hand of the Father. The, the, the resurrection was the Father's acceptance and reward for such an utterly complete and marvelous work on the cross. I'll give you two more scriptures, Philippians 2, 8, and 9. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, therefore. Everybody see that? Therefore, because he humbled himself to being obedient to death, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every other name. Because the sacrifice was perfect. God says, I accept that. I'm gonna give you a name that's above every other name. Let's go back to the Old Testament. How about this? Isaiah fifty three. Everybody knows Isaiah fifty three is the is the is the, the passage in Isaiah where he where he basically foretells the, um, the crucifixion of Jesus. If you go back and read verses 10 through 12, it says this, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Therefore, because he died, because he's been put to grief, because he suffered, because he took those stripes, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Why is he rewarded? Why is he accepted? Because... He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. You see, the resurrection is an acceptance of that that sacrifice. As a full 700 years before Jesus Christ came to this earth. Isaiah saw the death and the resurrection. And he saw the connection between them. That the resurrection of Jesus was once again the acceptance and the validation of his suffering to cover our sin. So Paul is saying to you and I, that the resurrection of Jesus is the proof that his death was sufficient to cover your sins. And he says, if he didn't raise from the dead, that means it wasn't good enough, and you're still in your sins. But because he was, you can be assured that his sacrifice was accepted, and you're not still in your sins. And that leads us to consequence number four. Paul says, those who have, if there is no resurrection... Those who have died have perished. Look at verse 18. Then those who also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That word in the Greek means utterly destroyed. He's not just saying that they died a physical death. He's saying that they died and now they have come under the judgment and the wrath of God. Because they were still in. If there's no resurrection, then when they die, Paul says, they go under the judgment and the wrath of God. That's another. That's the fourth consequence. And then number five is this. Paul said, if there is no resurrection, we are to be pitied above all people. Look at verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Every one of us here today, whether we know it or, or not, we, every day that we get up, we stand at a fork in the road. Every day that we get up and get ready to walk out the door into another day of our life, We have to make a choice, and the choice is what type of life am I going to live today? Every day, you make this choice every single day. What type of life am I going to live today? And I believe in my heart that most of us, deep down, at our best and our highest moments, most of us dream of of living our lives in a sacrificial way, not selfishly. You understand what I'm saying? I think deep down, most of us... I need to do more. I want to do more. I I know I'm too selfish, right? We we dream of spending our life in, in service because we know that's what we should be doing. I think most of us deep down really want that. But also, almost all of us also know this. There's another side of us that we're not very proud of, are we? And that's this side of us that gets up every day that dreams of physical pleasures, that dreams of material comforts, Uh, earthly security, family delights, all the human esteem. We want people to like us. We want to have enough money, not to have to worry about finances. We want to be secure. Everybody with me? We fight that fight every day. Am I going to live a self-sacrificing life of service, or am I going to live a life on those things? Am I going to go after those things? Every day, we walk out the door, and we have to make a choice. What What am I going to do? What am I going to do today? Listen. The apostle Paul is no different. He's not some superman. Don't don't think Paul was some kind of spiritually endowed superman that he could do things that you and I couldn't do. Every day Paul had that exact same choice. What kind of life am I going to live today? And yet every day he walked got out of bed, walked out the door, and he chose to live his life in a self-sacrificing way to share the good news of Jesus with a lost and dying world. And the risk that he took and the suffering he endured, it was incredible. Go back. He said, go back. There's a scripture. I should have put it up there. He was shipwrecked so many times. He was beaten so many times. He was, I mean, he just went through. He was cold. He was naked. He was suffering. He didn't have enough clothes to wear. He was, I mean, his life was just a model of sacrifice. But he made that choice every single day that, that he got up. And the same Paul, listen to me, the same Paul who lived that life said this. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then I am of most men to be pitied. In other words, if there's no, if there's no resurrection, then this life I'm living of self, he said, I should just be pitied. How, how stupid I am. How, how, how dumb I am to live this kind of life. You see, let me tell you what that tells me. That tells me that Paul, what what drove him to live that kind of life was a belief in a resurrection. See, that is what drove Paul to live that that kind of life. Everybody with me? See, he he knew if there's no resurrection, then this life I'm living, this is ridiculous. The reason I'm living a life of self-sacrifice and service to other people is because I know that one day... There's, there's going to be a resurrection. And my point this morning here is this. The same is true for you and I. Every day we get out of bed and we have a choice to make. Others or me? Others or me? And what's going to drive you and I to live a life of service and self-sacrifice is a belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I brought my uh, I brought my rope this morning. I know, I know some of y'all have seen this, right? So... I used to use this for the youth. Everybody see the rope? Okay? It's only about 100 foot long. But what I want you to do this morning, for those of you that had not seen this, I want you to, this rope represents eternity. Everybody with me? This is eternity. It goes on. It's only 100 foot, but just assume it goes off into eternity. Everybody with me? Okay? Everybody see the little piece of orange? This is your life here on earth. That's your life here on earth. See, Paul says, at the end of this orange, there's going to be a resurrection. And I'm going to live the rest of my life with Jesus. In perfect pleasure, no guilt, no pain, no tears, no nothing. And see, he lived his life knowing that this is, this, this is just so short here today. See, the question for us is, what are we living for? Are you living for the orange or are you living for the white? Which one are you living for? But you see, the belief in the resurrection is everything. Because the way you get from the orange to the white is the resurrection. Without the resurrection, see, Paul says there is no white. And you might as well go home and eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. This is all there is. But see, the fact is, Paul says, but in fact, Jesus has been raised from the dead. In fact, there is a white, and Paul says, I am living for it see my point here today is what was true for paul is also true for you and i let me try to put it another way the greatest obstacle to a life of risk-taking and and self-sacrifice this is the greatest obstacle paul will point this out in a few weeks in verse 32 he says if the dead are not raised let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die because this is all there is this is it Just go home, forget church, forget the body of Christ, forget reading your Bible. If Jesus ain't raised, this this is all nothing. Just just go home and live your life any way you want it. In other words, without a hope for resurrection and everlasting joy with Christ, we will treat this life as just something we need to squeeze every bit of pleasure we can out of it. Right? Because there is nothing else. So here's my final question to to you this morning. How are you living your life today? Are you living it as someone who believes in the resurrection? See, it's easy to say, folks, and listen to me, it's easy to say, I believe in the resurrection. But there's a point where the rubber meets the road. How are you living your life? Are you living your life as someone who really believes that this life here is just a vapor? and there's coming a resurrection where I'm going to spend eternity with Christ, if you really believe that to the deepest part of your hearts, you're going to live your life differently than someone who doesn't believe that. Correct? See, that's my point. What do you really believe? And how are you living your life? Or are you living it as someone who thinks that this is all there is? See, Paul says, in fact, Christ has been raised. That means I will be raised with him. And that means that this life here is just that little piece of orange tape is just a brief prelude into eternity, an eternity that's going to be filled with joy and pleasures forevermore. And if that's true, by the way, can I tell you all looking back, was Paul a fool? No. Was Paul a fool? If you look back through history, anybody that sacrificed their life, that gave their life in the service of Jesus Christ, were they a fool? No, I can trust you right now. We, we, you know, see, you only get one chance. You only get one chance. There's going to be a day where we stand maybe in this church or another church and, and, and maybe your casket is sitting right here and you're it's over. It's done. What kind of life did you lead? Was it a life that just you just squeezed as much pleasure out of it as you could because you just figured this is all there is? Or is it a life of self-sacrifice? Is is it a life of service to Jesus Christ? You see, anybody that lives a life like that, let me tell you, you don't have to pity them. You do not have to pity them because they have put their trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.